0: i um, I seen it, and that was all I needed to see. It is pure evil. And I want to tell you, I'm not going to tell you anything graphic about it. I'm just going to tell you the premise of it. And I want to show you where America's mindset is today. This is why when you and I go out and preach the words of life, all they know is death. This is why, because their mind and their brain is consumed with death. The glorification. I of am saints. seeing something on the screen and repulsed by it. I am sitting there dreading another needle in the eyeball. I am dreading another incision across the scalp and the peeling back of the scalp. That's dread. That is not horror and that's not entertainment. It is stress. This is some of the Hollywood writers. This is simply appalling. The uh, Night of the Living Dead, you know, the Chainsaw Massacre, this horrible oh,
1: stuff, the blood oh, and gore. Oh, oh, you, you don't want to you this on your life, life. I, like and you have I just four instantly movies flashed back to the first home. time those I eight saw eight the
2: poster for same. it at the movie oh, theater.
3: Four. Sorry. Oh, I'm gonna, no, I'm going to look oh, yeah, that up.
2: So, I think I was in middle school, maybe? And... I remember the front of the poster has a guy touching his fingertips together, and he has piercings on his knuckles.
3: Uh. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it now. Yeah. yeah, you
2: see what I mean with the weird knuckle piercings? And that's the only <laughs> time I've seen that, and I have never seen an actual real human being with those piercings. And so... Yeah, cool. Every time someone says Ghost of Mars, I think of weird-ass knuckle-piercing. Yeah, no,
3: this guy definitely isn't a real human being. Is Ice Cube in this movie? <laughs> <laughs>
0: yep. Welcome to episode number 62 of the Horror Explorer podcast. This is a podcast determined a to turn people on to horror movies they might have never seen or even heard of. We like to focus on VHS-era horror that most younger horror fans aren't aware of, and some of the more obscure or unusual horror that's come out since. My name is Mike, and this week with me I have Lauren. Hello, Liam.
3: Hey, everyone,
1: and Criminal Dave. Hello. This week I'm Criminal Dave because of some quote unquote criminal exploits I got into on Fourth of July. Did
3: so, you him, man,
1: yeah.
0: Well, I'm he quote, really, you know, when he told me about it on Facebook, because you guys remember Dave was not here last week. Uh, So we did a show without him, and it's like, you know, we told Dave for, I told Dave for weeks that we were recording on a different day, and he was aware of it. And then Dave flaked. And then when I talked to him later about it, he tells me like, "Oh man, I got so much going on. I got in trouble with the police." I was like, "What? (laughs) Dave got in trouble with the police? This is so fucking hard to believe." (laughs) So of course, I go, I kind of, anytime Dave plays something up, I go into it knowing I'll be let down. So Dave, why don't you briefly tell us what getting in
1: trouble with the police means to you? So what happened was a group of friends and I got together for the 4th of July. We, like, partied a bit at a few places, and then we were at my apartment, and we decided, hey, what if we go to, like, the main auditorium, like the biggest auditorium at my university, and just go inside and use the projector and speaker system for, like, drunken karaoke? And everybody's like, yes, that's a great idea. So we bring a lot of stuff over there and, like, drink and party there, However, the cops show up because the cleaner people didn't want to have to clean up like vomit and spilled drinks and that sort of thing off the like main stage. So the cops were like at this point our group had dwindled down to only five people. So only And wait, five-
0: well Dave, you're leaving out an important detail. You're saying the cops, but really who showed up?
1: University police. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, we didn't get any like minor in possession stuff or anything like that. But we did get reprimanded, and if we get caught by, like, university police before January, then we get, like, in real trouble, and we have to go to, like, two one-hour meetings. So, like— So, wait, you
0: don't even have to go to the meetings? I thought you had to go to the meetings.
1: We do. We have to go to two one-hour meetings. Oh, okay.
0: So that's not conditional on if you get caught again.
1: Yeah, then we have to write a reflective paper. (laughs)
0: <laughs> <Just interesting.
1: laughs> he is. Yeah. Oh
0: yeah. my He's god. Like, well,
1: the best satire paper like I've ever written. This is going to be amazing. But anyway, well, at, that's least at least they I didn't went.
0: show up for your bestiality party. That would have been a lot
1: worse. Yeah, that was at my apartment, so like nobody. They couldn't have shown up. They could have, but like oh, people would have had to complain, and nobody's going to complain about bestiality. <laughs> uh. <laughs>
0: All right, so every week I make these guys watch an older or more obscure movie that most people their age might not be familiar with, usually something I like, because the whole point of this podcast is to make younger horror fans aware that the best new horror movie that they see this year could be a movie from 30 years ago that they didn't even know existed.
2: And this week, Mike made us watch The Hitcher.
3: Yeah, and uh, I had heard of this one. I hadn't seen it before, but it's, um, you know, it's actually been on my watch list since I saw... Uh, even before I saw the remake a few years ago because um, I love road movies, horror, or otherwise. I really like the, the cat and mouse thing, and I I kind of knew the premise, um, especially because the title is sort of a indication of those those tropes that we've become accustomed to, so I was really looking forward to this one, totally.
1: I had seen it once before, but that was it. Like, I, thought- I had
2: never seen it.
1: Had you even heard of it? I-
2: no. Actually, I somehow totally missed it, including the remake.
0: Wow. I, I,
2: Who knows what it, I was doing?
0: Yeah, well you were probably not born yet would be the primary contributing factor. Still
2: well, that is the Jupiter. Physically-
0: it physically hurts me that there are people who have not seen this movie. I love this movie. Uh, I saw it pro- again, probably when it first came to VHS, probably 87, 88, somewhere in there. I was pretty young, like maybe 12 years old at the oldest. And Rudger Hauer scared the hell out of me. I've seen this movie, I don't know how many times. It doesn't get played on TV or anywhere else very much, so it's not like a casino or boogie nights where, you know, I run into it and watch the whole thing, cause you really never see it broadcast
3: yeah uh like mike actually um before we decided on watching this movie but uh after you had brought it up as a possibility it was about three or four nights ago i was i was flicking around on cable at two in the morning and i caught this the minute it started so um so i, I watched it then despite not knowing if we were gonna do it because wow. i figured you know i'll get i got the chance now it's been on my watch list for so long and so but that was the first time i've ever seen it on the guide too
0: That's crazy. You got that that metric cable up there in Canada. Maybe they play some different stuff.
3: There you go.
0: So what's this movie about? The name, as Liam said, will kind of hint you at what it's about. This movie's about a young man that barely escapes a psychopathic hitchhiker after picking him up during a cross-country road trip. And that begins a horrifying game of cat and mouse as the hitchhiker kills his way across the desert in pursuit. And this movie only has a couple of people in it because it's basically just about two or three people. The younger person who picks up the Hitchhiker, is C. Thomas Howell, uh, Jim Halsey is the name of the character. Uh, he was in E.T., he was in The Outsiders, he was in Red Dawn. He was a major star in the 80s, and uh, even since then he's worked pretty steadily. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him or not.
3: Uh, I did check out his Wikipedia page after seeing this, and, um, you know, I recognized, uh, the ones you said, the big movies from the 80s. And I also saw that he played Crane Dad in the Amazing Spider Man that came out a few years ago. So, uh, he's, he's had okay work, I guess.
0: And also, we have, uh, Rudger Hauer as the titular hitcher named John Ryder. And you you know who Rucker Howard is. I'm I'm sure you you should know who he is anyways. He was uh, in Blade Runner. He was in Blind Fury, which you probably haven't seen, but I love Blind Fury, so I had to mention
1: it. His most important role is Blind Fury.
0: I would say this is, but Blind Fury is a very close second. He was also in Sin City, which I've never seen, and kind of recently, the kind of indie... Grindhouse movie Hobo with a Shotgun. He plays the hobo. And he had, a, even more recently, he had a recurring role on True Blood in the last couple seasons of it, if any of you are a fan of that. Nope. And The Waitress Nash is played by Jennifer Jason Leigh, again, a familiar name. She was in Backdraft, and uh, she was in The Machinist, and probably best known as Daisy Dahmergu in The Hateful Eight.
3: Yeah, she's great. I, I wouldn't have recognized her if I hadn't seen uh, you know that it was her, but she's great in The Hateful Eight, and, and she's good in this, too, yeah.
0: Yeah, I didn't even know that until I went through her IMDb. I was like, oh, that was her. So we'll see what these guys have to say about The Hitcher right after this.
2: If you would like to contact us here at the Horror Explorer podcast, you can reach us via email at horrorexplorerpodcast at com, or you can interact with us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash horrorexplorer, or follow us on Twitter at horrorexplorer.
0: All right, we're back, and now we'll see what these guys thought of The Hitcher, starting as usual with Criminal Dave.
1: So, in this movie, we open with pretty much the same thing that we see in a ton of other movies, like Leviathan and a lot of 80s horror movies. We get some slow, ominous music over red titles.
0: Yep, yeah, it starts out with him Him lighting uh, the driver, who is Jim Halsey, the kid that I was mentioning earlier. He's... Lighting a cigarette, he's driving a car, in the rain, in the desert. He's kind of sleepy and falling asleep and stuff like that. It's a pretty prolonged credit sequence, really.
1: Yeah, definitely. But something important to note is all the shots are really beautiful. Like, we open on, as you already said, Mike, an extreme close-up of him lighting a match. And we'll see that, like, lighter and fire symbolism, like, recur throughout. Even in the very last shot, he's lighting a match.
0: Yeah. yeah, I'm glad you brought up the cinematography because I don't know if you guys noticed, but this movie is fucking beautiful. There are so many yes. great shots in this movie. The cinematographer is uh, the same cinematographer who did Rain Man, and uh, let me see what else what was the other really good movie that he did here. Let me try to find it. Oh yeah, and uh, he did he did Mad Max Fury Road, which is oh, another really good, wow. shot movie. Yeah, yeah,
3: I, and I feel he also like did Desert. Mad Max. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He does.
0: He's real good with deserts. He also did Gorillas in the Mist, which is in the jungle. That looks really good too. The Firm, which is really well shot. Dead Poet Society. Eh. And Dreamcatcher, regardless of what you think of it, a lot of the stuff out in the woods and the snow is fucking beautiful too. His name's John Seal, with an E.
3: Cool. Yeah, I think, I think this prolonged, um, credit sequence of, uh, you know, a lot of quiet shots, um, it really does a great job establishing the tone, especially for the, this opening, you know, 10-minute scene we're about to get. And um, a movie called The Hitcher, uh, a road movie in particular, I would love for it to be dark and be rainy. And that's exactly what I would want out of a movie like this. And I'm, I was so glad to see that that's where we started.
0: It's where we started, but like throughout the movie, there's so many shots where you can tell he, he's using the natural beauty and color of the desert and these really long, wide shots. And it gives the movie, throughout, like a feeling of visual, visually, the movie is consistent because of this. Even some of the interior shots feel very open when when you'd expect them to feel confined when the characters go inside. A lot of those shots feel really open and
1: roomy, too. Oh, totally. I think this hits on a really interesting thing with the cinematography in this movie. The interiors of pretty much every space feel open, like you mentioned, Mike. From using like wider lenses, et cetera, floaty camera movement, that sort of thing. And the exteriors are obviously the same. However, the only time when this differs is when they're actually inside a car. So yes. that gives a really key feeling of claustrophobia and entrapment oh.
3: because yeah, that's, a, that's the movie a, great about
1: point. a killer who shows up in a guy's car.
3: Yeah.
0: And even towards the end of the movie, it changes, not just when they're in a vehicle, because towards the very end of the movie, you, you still got some wider open shots where, where the character on screen doesn't take up a very large percentage and you've just got the area around him. And in these shots, instead of them feeling open, what he does is he clutters them with like a lot of vehicles, trucks, junk, stuff like that. So it doesn't feel so open and free anymore.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And when you said Mad Max Fury Road, you know, I was blown away because I can totally see that, especially in, um, you know, the, the middle, uh, portion of the movie. There's all these open shots of, of the desert and at some, at times it almost feels like ethereal. There's, a, there's a great scene, um, where sand is blowing around and, uh, these figures are walking in and out of the frame and they're silhouetted and they're so small in comparison to the frame. And, um, yeah, yeah it's, yeah, it's great. You're right.
2: Well, you mentioned the music and how atmospheric it was. And I thought that I would look up who composed music. And the composer is actually the same as the ABC series Once Upon a Time, which is, I know, totally not in our normal wheelhouse of discussion, (laughs) but I thought it was interesting the diversity that this composer is able to produce between this, like, really, like, the music itself was almost, almost vast. Not like in terms of big, but like there'd be a little bit of piano and then silence for a bit and it would come back. It I felt it worked well with the desert and with the wide shots and just the overall atmosphere.
1: But yeah. in the beginning, the music is interesting because we get an almost like Spielbergian sense of wonder. It mixed in with some like more ominous creeping music that we got in the title sequence. So, and that Spielberg music doesn't give, away, give way until... We actually see the shadowy figure in the rain, John Ryder.
3: I, I'd say that the the sound design and the music in this—it's very sparse, it's very subtle, but it is—it's uh, super effective. Like I wouldn't say that I really noticed it, but I I would say that it was doing things to me, uh, despite um, not really realizing that that's what happened because it was it was very, um, it, you know, just fit really well. It wasn't intrusive at all.
1: Yeah. I definitely agree. Anyway, so moving on to like a specific plot point, the car pulls over and the guy, he started to fall asleep. He almost got hit by a bus, our main character, and he opens the door to let Rutger Hauer in. And this is a really nice moment because Rutger Hauer appears almost like a shadow or almost like a devil. And that really parallels his supernatural connections in the film.
2: And we get this great line from our driver that says, my mother told me never to do this.
1: It's fantastic. List. It's great foreshadowing.
3: Yeah, uh, and I, I think I loved that's the it. first line said in the movie, right?
2: It is, it is. I just got such a giggle out of that line. It's like there's well, yeah, probably a reason. So yeah.
3: <laughs> well, because it, it, it just totally, it sets the tone. It, it um, The whole film is about a good guy versus a bad guy, right? And a bad guy trying to bring a good guy down to his level. And so, with this opening line, um, we already have our our typical good guy making a decision that you know might be a bit um, questionable, and uh, and it only escalates from there.
1: So once Ruckerhauer actually gets in the car, the main character whose name is Jim clearly starts to know that something is like wrong with this guy when he says they pass by a car by the side of the road, and Ruckerhauer says, oh. I was just there or something to that effect. So he, yeah,
0: and he says, well, what's wrong with that car? And you look at it as he's driving past it. And you if you watch at the very beginning, he gets passed by that car before the rain starts like much earlier. You know, you assume it's hours earlier in his drive, but only a couple minutes into the movie uh, that car passes him at one point. So you see it again here and you, you at least I, I recognized it and I kind of understood that it was going to be something
1: significant. So, Rutger Hauer says a bunch of things that are threatening and vaguely ominous, and he basically <laughs> – yeah, yeah, there's no other – Vaguely
0: way. ominous. Yeah. Well, he's he, – he, Jim Halsey is the, the the character. I'll, try, I'll probably refer to him as a million different things. You just see, see how it's style Jim Halsey, whatever. He's trying to ask him, like, where he's going, and Rutger Hauer won't answer, and he's kind of defiant about just ignoring him, and he asks him for a cigarette and stuff like that. And then after they pass this car – Right as he starts to slow down and see what's going on, Rutger Hauer reaches over and presses on his knee to press the accelerator of the car down so they go flying past it so he can't see what happened. So right, right away, it's suspicious, and this guy's definitely crossed the line.
3: Because he's
1: physically touched the person who is, like, driving.
0: Yeah. And then he decides he's going to pull over and just let him out. He's like, yeah, I'm done with this shit.
1: And then Rutger Hauer says, no, I'm going to sit right here, and there's nothing you can do about it. And then the kid's yep. like, well, okay, I guess I'll
3: keep driving.
0: Yeah, and I like how you get, again, you get a little bit more foreshadowing because he acts like he's going to get out and he opens the door and he just drops his cigarette out and then he closes the door and then you see a shot of the dashboard and it says, door ajar.
1: Yeah, and I really like this. This movie has a lot of really subtle reincorporation that I like quite a bit and this is a good example of it because later on when Jim Halsey and John Ryder, Rutger Hauer, are driving by, Rutger Hauer is like, I'm going to kill you, and and you better say, I want to die so I can kill you. But then the kid kicks him out of the car, which he manages to do because the door was left ajar.
0: Yeah, and he even looks down at the dash and sees that it says door ajar again. You get another shot of him looking down. You get the shot of the dashboard. And I thought that was really, really cool though, how he keeps telling, you know, tell me you want to die. Tell me you want to die. And this is important to the whole message of the film, I think, too. He's like, tell me you want to die. He's like, he says, I don't want to die, and tosses him out the door and closes the door, and, you know, he has his little celebration there. I thought it was really powerful, because there's so much tension already, right, the beginning of the movie, because previous to this he's, he asked well what happened to the guy in the car he's talking about how he cut off he couldn't have walked far because I cut off his legs and his arms and his head so there's mm-hmm. all so much tension in this short car ride at the beginning and when he when he flings him out that door you're like yeah and then at the same time the character's like yeah like screaming fuck you and kind of celebrating as he's driving you know right along with the audience and i thought that was really well done
1: yeah, we immediately establish an emotional connection between the audience and this main character while we establish a connection between the killer and the main character. Because this exchange between Jim Halsey and John Ryder is very solid, very well acted and very well written.
3: Yeah, it's, it's a really a fantastic opening scene and Mike is right. It's so tense and, um, we know that this Hitcher is is going to be a bad dude, but it's it's the way it's revealed to us that is so good. The lines of dialogue are so creepy. You know, um, John Ryder says, uh, that's what the other guy said, and that's when he first <laughs> yeah. hints that he had been in a car previously. You know, I want you to stop me. And then he says to Jim that he, he wants him to say, I want to die, and all these lines are so ominous. And then when Jim wins at the end of this scene, He's in celebration. We're in celebration. But then we know that there's still an hour and 20 minutes of movie left. And so it's just, it's so awesome. This is a short film in itself. And then when you realize that there's still a full movie to come, it's, it's you know, so good.
2: And not only is there a bunch of creepy dialogue, there's also some straight up horrific dialogue. Uh, Rutger Hauer starts describing how he killed the other people in the car. He says, well, I cut off his arm. And his legs and his head, and we realized that that's what we sped by. What we sped by was actual carnage.
3: Yeah, it's it's so brutal, and it's kind of it's an indication of how this movie um goes on to handle violence. We don't actually see um a lot of uh, violent acts um, explicitly being committed, but we do see either the aftermath or we're told that these events took place. And so um, I thought that was really cool too. It's, it's a very simple and restrained movie, but it's also very intentional.
1: After this scene, the kid is kind of like driving by and celebrating and he, we get kind of like a montage of this, a montage of his journey. We get a lot of beautiful landscape shots and a car with small children in it passes by him.
0: Yeah, it's towing a boat, and it's a uh, station wagon, and in the back of the station wagon with the window rolled down, there's two little kids with guns, and he's, like, waving to the kids, and they're shooting at him, and he's, like, bang, bang, back with his fingers and stuff like that, and then with next to these two kids, you see a teddy bear come up and start dancing around, he's like, oh, that's neat, and then the teddy bear moves out of the way, and it's fucking Rucker Hauer, who is creepy (laughs) as fuck,
3: and it's like, you
0: feel feel exactly what the character's feeling like, fuck, he's in a car with that (laughs) family. Oh shit.
1: It also establishes like an almost supernatural ability and an omnipresence of Rutger Hauer.
0: You've said supernatural a couple of times. I mean, what I really like about this movie is although he's doing some extraordinary things, it still comes off as natural rather than supernatural you know it doesn't it, it's not like he's teleporting like Jason in the Friday yeah, the 13th movies or something like that he got dumped on the road someone picked him up they eventually you know somewhere down the road ended up passing the kid and they're in front now and this happens a couple of times where he kind of disappears and reappears but really it's 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 a it's it's, it's, it's it's something that can be explained rather mundanely rather than supernaturally and and you know how i feel about the supernatural in movies it kind of takes me out of it
1: and yeah, this just, movie doesn't yeah. really do that i didn 't mean to say he was supernatural, I meant to say he's omnipresent
3: yeah i th- I think the key here is that John he's just always two steps ahead of Jim, you know the bad guy is always two steps ahead of our good guy and um so when we see uh Jim win at the end of this scene and and think that it's over, and then despite having this terrifying encounter he 's back to himself and he 's happy and he 's playing around with these kids, you know uh. John hasn't broken him yet, and then when we see that John is still around, then we know that, uh, you know, maybe we haven't seen all that there is to see, and Jim could still be in for some stuff, and he totally is. You know, it goes down a little while later.
2: I think it's really interesting that Rutger Howard does not come off as charismatic in any way. To me, he is not presented as someone that I could inherently trust right off the bat, So we almost see Jim as, I saw him as an idiot for letting this guy get into his car in the (laughs) middle of the desert. But then to see a family go by where he is sitting in the back with the kids?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's very irresponsible parenting right there.
2: Like, this is a series of dumb people driving cars.
0: (laughs) So what ends up happening is he he pulls alongside the station wagon and he's desperately trying to warn them, pointing and screaming and stuff like that. And they're like totally oblivious. They're like, "What's what's this guy's problem?" You know, just kind of looking at him like they have no idea what's going on. And yeah. while he's doing this, he gets run off the road. He hits a bus, which fucks up the car he is driving, which is not even his. You know, which which to me, I I thought first thing I thought when that scene happened, I wasn't thinking about the kids or nothing like that. I was just thinking about how. Wow, that's his job to deliver that car, and now it's fucked up. It's like he failed a GTA Five mission.
3: <laughs> yeah, the, the second that he said that it's not his car and it's a driveaway car, I was pretty sure that later on in the movie we would see it driving down the road in flames.
0: Later down the road, he catches up, and of course the car's on the side of the road, kind of sideways, you don't see anybody, and he hurries up, up and gets out of his car, runs up to it, And as Liam was saying before, when this movie has some like visceral, disgusting gore, it takes place not on the screen, but in your head for the most part. And he kind of goes up and starts looking in the windows and you see a shot from under the car of his feet as they travel around the car, looking in the windows and you see like blood dripping out of the car onto the ground. And it's like, That's a lot of blood if it's dripping out of the fucking car. So you know that that whole family got just brutally mutilated and massacred. And then he runs back to his car and he starts barfing. And at this point, you're like, wow, so he's really up against some
1: serious shit. And the violence is suggested rather than Mm -hmm. shown, which works really well in this movie throughout, especially considering the ending. The fact that the violence is always only implied rather than explicit makes the ending when the main don't
0: don't don't blow the ending yet
3: okay okay.
0: the horror violence is not shown but throughout this movie there's a lot of action violence and that is really well done
3: yeah oh yeah uh yeah i don't know if we want to get there yet but there's uh there's some stuff that goes down with cars and helicopters and it's all it's all shot and uh blocked super well and it's, it's awesome
1: so he drives past the bodies and he has a sort of hero moment where It was at that point where he realizes he has to do something. So he stops at this gas station or abandoned barn or something along those lines, and he tries to ring the police to report this guy.
0: Yeah, it's like an old garage or something like that. And this is what I was talking about before, about how even some of the interior shots are wide open and roomy. Because he goes into this garage, and it's a very
3: wide-open
0: shot. It's a huge garage that he's inside, and it's pretty abandoned. He, he finds a payphone. Do you guys know what payphones are?
3: Yes. Yes. I Googled them after watching this movie. <laughs> and,
0: uh, <laughs> and, of course, it doesn't work or whatever.
1: Yeah, and then Rutger Hauer shows up and throws the car keys on the ground in front of the kid and just walks off, indicating that he could have done whatever he wanted with the kid's car, and he doesn't want the car, he wants the kid. And also it indicates that he's just toying with the kid.
0: And I really I really like leading into the scene when he gets there, it's uh, like a a dust storm going on, so you don't see a whole lot of detail, and at first you're like, okay, it's just like a gimmicky thing because they're in the desert. But then it really comes into play very well because – John Ryder leaves, and the kids just kind of like, "Whoa!" And he picks up his keys and he goes outside just in time to barely, through the dust storm, see uh, the the hitchhiker get picked up by a truck. And he like goes running and screaming after it, but it doesn't see him because of the dust storm. So it kind of played into what was going on,
1: and it looked great. And the dust storm is reminiscent of the rain, which is the first time we saw John Ryder. No, that's a good point. Yep,
2: he brings the weather. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and that adds like supernatural aura around him, I think. Because even though yeah, it he makes him supernatural it is like it you know, makes
0: him armor. seem powerful.
3: Oh, totally. Yeah. Like every every single scene almost where these characters interact so closely, including the opening scene in the car, um, they could be the you know, the proverbial final showdown between the characters, um, John could really kill Jim uh, whenever he wants. You know, he had the knife to his eye already, and now here he had him in this uh, super open, barren space, and again, he 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 decided not to. So this is one where it's starting to pick up that his um, motives definitely just aren't to kill him, but to, uh, you know, he has something else in mind.
0: I don't agree with that statement completely because I think in their first encounter, his intent is absolutely to kill Jim Halsey just like any other victim that he had killed previously. And I think the experience of Jim Halsey, the experience of the kid tossing him out of the car and getting the upper hand and defeating him, which is probably a new thing for him, totally changes what his mission is.
3: Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I think um – I totally agree, because yeah, it's after he lands on the ground, after being pushed out, he looks up and smiles, right? So I think you're right. that That's the that's the moment where he realizes that this guy is unlike anyone else he has encountered, and that's when he decides to, uh, I'm going to go meet this guy in a sandstorm and uh, throw him some car keys or something. But yeah, I think well, you're right. Well, that's like,
2: exactly what he wanted.
3: Now, what's exactly what he wanted?
2: He straight up says, I want you to stop me. He doesn't say
0: that in the very – that's not in the very first scene, though, Lauren. In the first scene, he's insisting when he's got the knife to his eye, you know, tell me you want to die, tell me you want to die. And then it's later in the movie, uh, maybe in one of their other encounters, like maybe after this one or somewhere, I forget exactly where, where he's, where he's saying, what do you want? And he says, I want you to stop me. He doesn't say that in the first
3: scene, does he? No, I'm pretty sure he does, Mike. I I think before he, he, yeah, before he has the knife to him and he tells him, uh, I want you to say, I want to die. I'm, I'm, I'm almost positive. Yeah, he does. Um, he does kind of deliver his, uh, his mantra, you know, the thesis statement for the whole movie. I want you to stop me. And so when Jim does stop him, uh. You know, because I'm sure he says oh. that to nearly everyone. But, yeah, I think that's when he realizes. Oh, that's used. something
2: you just say to all your murder victims.
3: Oh, totally, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. All right, well, my, my apologies, then. You're right. I think I can kind of recall that.
2: And you get into this, like, catch-22 of, like, he can't fight for his own life without directly feeding into what Rutger Hauer wants.
1: Yeah. Right, yeah. Anyway, so moving right along, the kid tries to, like, track down Rutger Hauer to warn the people he got in the truck with. However, he stumbles upon a gas station, and as he approaches the gas station, we get a ton of, like, wide, quiet shots, a lot of really low ambience here. And then we get our first official, I guess we could call the scare of the film, when the truck that Rutger Hauer hijacks just bursts through the wall and (laughs) attacks uh, the kid.
0: Yeah, he's, like, peeling out and stuff like that, and he knocks over a bunch of gas pumps, and they're leaking gas everywhere. And that was really effective, you know, because, again, it was... It was very quiet, it was kind of peaceful, and then it just gets totally just shot by this truck exploding through the wall or through a garage door or something like that. It's like they intentionally made that as low-key as possible just to maximize how frightening that truck popping out was.
1: And this continues throughout the film because we get lots of vehicle violence, similar to a Mad Max film.
0: Yeah, and I really like – this is one of the really good, like, stunt action sequences as well. I think it was shot and timed perfectly because, first of all, Dave, this is – I'm going – I will go to the mat on this. This is a good use of slow motion because you have this instant where he's sitting there in the truck and he's holding a match out the window and he lights it on the mirror. And then the kid is laying in all this gas and he realizes, shit, I'm in a giant lake of gasoline. And he starts trying to run to get away from it. And you've got everything that's happening in that is very important and it's very tense and it's only going to happen in a couple of seconds. And using the slow motion to, to slow down the pace there really does a lot to build up the tension of the scene because he just barely gets back into the Cadillac as the match hits the puddle of gasoline and explodes.
1: And I'm not going to fight you on that. I agree. I completely agree. I think later uses of slow motion are not as justified, but in this use I agree. All right, cool.
0: And I really like the scene because just as you get like a couple shots of the, the gas going up and it blowing out the windows in the gas station and then you get a more distant shot of the of the explosion that follows. And just as the gas station explodes, you see that Cadillac come flying out of the parking lot, like around from behind a fence or something like that, with the whole front half of it on fire. And it was a really energetic, really perfectly timed stunt sequence.
1: Definitely. So after this scene, we're introduced to our love interest character, Diner Girl slash Nash. And we are introduced to her kind of just walking around a completely abandoned diner, uh, living a pretty boring life. She is not given the same level of introduction as our protagonist is during his introduction, but she kind of is revealed to have a soft side very quickly when she lets in the protagonist into the diner.
0: Yeah, and she even makes him a hamburger like for free while he's cleaning up because he smells like gas or whatever. And he calls the the police. The police are like, hey, stay put. We're going to be right there because he doesn't know what's in store for him. So he's hanging out, waiting and eating a hamburger. And it's... At this point, this is the first time I've ever really watched the movie, like, with a critical eye. I've always just really liked the movie. But at this point in the movie, when she makes the hamburger on the grill, I know this sounds so stupid, but her making that hamburger is shot so fucking well. Two or three seconds of her grilling the burger, it's like framed, and it's like in thirds, and it's just fucking perfect. And even though it's just a burger on a fucking grill, it's a still a big, wide, open, roomy shot. I don't know how the fuck he does it. And then later when she puts the burger up, she takes it and puts it up on a shelf while she's waiting, you know, wherever they, when they're putting it up for the waitresses to get, you know, right between the kitchen and the front of the store there and they just show a shot of the burger and fries sitting there steaming that shot is fucking beautiful and it's just <laughs> a fucking hamburger and some fries
2: it made me so and- hungry <laughs> Yeah,
3: well, I-, I was gonna a- i was gonna ask mike um i'm not disagreeing with you at all but uh were you hungry at the time had you loaded up on Cheez-Its or were you was this before dinner or what <laughs>
0: No, this is only a couple hours after the cheese hit so my stomach was still turning. But that burger did look delicious. Okay. But it goes beyond how beautiful the burger looks. I mean, the whole <laughs> shot is beautiful. And it's like, this is the first time I've looked at it with a critical eye, and I'm like, wow. This movie is like a stunning example of really good cinematography.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. Uh, the burger shots didn't jump out at me the same way they jumped out at you. The shots that jumped out at me were the exteriors and the interiors of cars but i can definitely see where you're coming from
3: and um nash making this burger for him too it's it's just such a great character moment you know dave said she doesn't get um as much of an immediate introduction as jim does but um throughout the movie from this point on uh we do learn that she's a character with a lot of empathy and um she has a, a couple more great moments a little later on in the film
1: And she and this guy immediately connect over their dream of travel and moving to California, kind of like chasing your dreams. It's a very, very classic road trip movie cliché. You see it in Bonnie and Clyde. You see it in Wrist Cutter's A Love Story. You see it in, let's see, what else? Uh, Rebel Without a Cause, I think. Badlands, stuff like that. Breathless, a wide variety of Affirmative, Dave. Yeah. I (laughs) read you. It's a cliché, but I am actually a huge fan of this type of movie and this type of cliché. So it's showing that not all clichés can be bad.
0: It's a very believable interaction. It just feels very real. It doesn't feel forced or cheap or anything like that.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah. And we get a long take of the kid kind of slowly eating a french fry. And this long take goes on for a very, very long time.
3: (laughs) He eats his... He eats his french fries very elegantly, you know. I eat I eat my french fries the same way I eat an apple. You know, I just handful and shove. But he's, he's very careful. And, he's uh, eating the
0: french fry like he's eating pussy. Uh. <laughs> he's just taking his time. Like, he's really making love to that fucking plate of fries.
3: <laughs> I mean, I'm, I might, you know, I wasn't hungry when I was watching this movie. I also wasn't horny, so I don't know if I can relate there, but it's possible, yeah.
1: Anyway. So this shot goes on for such a long time, the audience, like, starts to zone out a little bit because not much is happening. It's kind of an empty frame, very, like, shallow focus on him. And then because he's kind of in a relaxed state, so the cinematography and editing mirrors that. And then he picks up what is supposed to be a fry and it turns out to be a finger. So it shocks the audience into paying attention and being aware of their situation just as it shocks him.
0: And I love how how they do this because instead of him just picking up the finger and it just kind of zooming on, zooming in and making it obvious, he picks it up and con and holds it and gets ready to bite into it the same way he did any other French fry that he was eating in that scene. You know, And it's it's split up into two scenes. First, there's that, and the audience might not notice that that french fry is a finger immediately. That shot is there for the people who will notice it immediately and for the people who won't, because then they follow it up with another shot that's more or less from his perspective, looking down and realizing that he's holding a finger. So it really amplifies the disgust, because you're like, whoa, I didn't really notice that was a finger right away either. I could have ate that.
3: Yeah, yeah, sure, that's a good point.
1: Then he runs outside, and... This is when we get to our first tr- Bonnie and Clyde moment. It's not exactly a Bonnie and Clyde moment, but establishes his relationship with the police.
0: You get this first really big, disgusting on screen. It shows the gore. There's a severed finger. It's in his hand. He's getting ready to eat it. Fucking gross. And it's, the audience gets hit with that. And like half a second later, when he runs outside to puke, you haven't recovered from that yet. And obviously, neither has he. And then you get this other huge, like, twist or whatever. You get this big turn in the movie, you get this big moment where it turns out the cops think he's the one that's killing everybody. So they pull in and pull the guns on him and tell him to get on the ground. And I love how it like double punches the main character and double punches the audience like that. I think that's fucking masterful.
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's a great um again, we said that well, I said that uh in the first 10 minutes of this this movie, it kind of feels like Everything you need to know is presented to you. And so 20, 25 minutes in, uh, this sort of, um, dimension being introduced is, uh, it's great and it really, it adds a little bit more complexity to the, uh, sort of simple, uh, plot, you know? Yeah,
1: definitely. And also, this adds a lot of frustration because It's a really big thing in horror movies, especially, like, coming-of-age horror movies, is when the little kid sees the monster under her bed, escapes the monster, goes to her parents and asks them to, like, look under the bed to check for the monster. The parents don't believe the little kid, so the little kid has to deal with the monster himself. That's the same thing here. The main character is asking the police for help. They don't believe him. They think it's him. So... He has has no
0: resources to draw on for help, just like the little kid. Now, every source of authority or every every power he could draw from to resolve his situation is now cut off. And even worse, it has been turned against him. And it's so fucking perfect. It adds that extra layer to the movie that just keeps the tension is just always on the character and the tension is always on the audience. It's great.
1: And speaking of tension, we should talk about the shot in the interrogation room when that just spirals around him in a long time. Yeah.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that shot because I, did, I went a little above and beyond for this one. So go ahead, Dave.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> what I was going to say is the spiral shot works really, really, really well. It starts on his back, giving him like dignity and not really showing his frustration. But then as we move around him, slowly and the cops circle him the camera moves against the cops movement which adds a lot of like dynamic potential in the shot so first of all it's beautifully composed and then the actors are blocked fantastically but also it gives a lot of room for the main character's performance to shine while building tension because it's a long take
0: and he's pleading with them he's trying to make his case and I get the impression that this is like the fifth time he's told them the same story as well and it culminates with like well, you don't have any ID because apparently, and he also had a bloody switchblade on him when they found him that the hitchhiker has, had planted in his jacket. He doesn't have any ID. They don't have any way of knowing who he is. Uh, they try calling the car company he works for and they don't answer. When he gives the number for the car company, it wasn't a 555 number. So you better believe I wrote that shit down and called him. Uh, their voicemail box was full. It didn't say what it was or anything like that. But I, I had to I was hoping, I was just hoping that that was some kind of Easter egg that there'd be something there, but really there wasn't. And so I went, went ahead and Googled the phone number to get an idea of at least what kind of company it is or something like that since their voicemail box didn't have any info. And what I found is that in like 2008 or 2009, some joker went around on the internet and if you get a lot of crappy phone calls, you'll start looking them up, like you'll get these 1-800 number phone calls that are from, or from area codes you don't recognize, and you'll look them up on the internet to see who it is that keeps calling and not leaving a message and hanging up. You know, it's telemarketers and scams and stuff like that. So there's all these different websites out there that have like 1-800 numbers, where you can just look up phone numbers and see what other people have to say about them, what collection agency it is, or what kind of scam it is, or whatever. And some joker in 2008 or 2009, somewhere around there, went to a bunch of these sites, and said that it was from Midwest Driveaway was calling them telling them they could move his car if he moved they had people that could drive it from one location to another and stuff like that which is the actual business that is on the voicemail in the movie
1: yeah that's why so someone
0: went someone went through the trouble that's crazy of like- yeah, like, like, like actually trying to make like an alternate reality game out of that or some shit. So I thought that was pretty cool. I couldn't find out who actually has it. I found like a name, but I couldn't find any numbers for the guy, so I just gave up at that point. And then later, and when that doesn't work, he's like, well, call my brother. They gave another real number. I was like, fuck yeah, I'm calling this one too. That one's just disconnected. So it was kind of disappointing. Aww. But it was cool that guy went through the effort of trying to, like, make it real by putting these things on all these websites saying it was Midwest Driveways number.
3: Yeah. Yeah, this poor guy that had the brother's phone number, it was probably just some real dude, and he kept getting (laughs) phone numbers of fans from this movie called The Hitcher he had never heard of, and eventually he was just, nah, I'm going cordless, and he disconnected (laughs) his landline.
1: So the police put our main character in a cell, and our main character goes to sleep, and we get a kind of cheesy nightmare sequence where he's kind of doing the classic, like, toss and turn in bed, intercut with shadowy scenes of the hitchhiker approaching him.
0: Yeah, of him p- picking up the hitchhiker. But it's not cheesy. I mean, it could have been cheesy because it wouldn't have made much sense. If you've ever seen the movie John Dies at the end, they go over this a little bit, too. And I'm sure in real life you've noticed this, too. When you're having a dream and there are sounds in outside of your dream in the awake world while you're asleep, your, your, brain, yeah, your brain will incorporate them into your dream. I mean, I've had dreams where the Flintstones show up because the Flintstones are on TV. Or, you know, like in the movie John Dies at the end, you know, he's talking about a dream he had or something. Like, there was an explosion in his dream right, right when the thunder happened. So how does your brain know that there's uh, going to be thunder? Stuff like that. But the point being, in this in this scene, he's, he's seen a flashback, and he's not having a nightmare about picking up the hitchhiker. And it's like two or three scenes, and at the third part, the hitchhiker comes up and knocks on his window real hard. But the audio of him knocking on the window real hard is gunshots, and then he wakes up.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's really, it's a neat device. And, you know, I can't even count the amount of times some sort of scary octopus in my dream has said in my mom's voice, Liam, get up, it's 2 p.m., and go back to sleep but yeah no it's it's a real thing and the way it's incorporated here is is sweet
1: yeah i actually i didn't make that connection that makes a lot of sense so yeah i concede my negative criticism of this movie then yeah yeah okay interesting i, I had no i didn't pick up
3: on that this is the first day of the rest of your life Dave.
1: <laughs> yeah. so, so he wakes up and what happens dave he walks around this empty police apartment and then- Well, he, wait, he
0: wakes up, he wakes up and his cell is not locked anymore. It's just yeah. kinda open.
1: Yeah, so then he goes yeah. outside and it feels like a scene out of Nightmare on Elm Street, like out of one of Nancy's dream sequences as she's walking around abandoned school or something along those lines. It feels like a nightmare still.
0: Yeah, because there's no one there, there's no one in any of the rooms, it's, it's surreal. Why would a police department not have anyone there? And there's just like a German shepherd walking around, it's like, what's up with that? And then he follows the German shepherd, and again, this is just such a perfectly done scene, where he sees the German shepherd's backside, and it's like doing something in a, in like a, a cubicle, and as he, he comes around the wall of the cubicle, you can see it's licking the blood off the throat of one of the police officers.
1: This moment is really strong because it establishes that his relationship with the killer is like a nightmare that he cannot wake up from.
0: Yeah, because apparently John Ryder came in there and killed all the cops and undid his cell. And he eventually he sees a couple more dead bodies. All the cops are dead and he grabs a gun and goes running out the back door just as like the state cops are showing up or something. Again, yeah. horror doubled up with the tension of the police being after him. It's just like one-two, another one-two punch. I think it's great.
3: Yeah, and, and we don't see these police officers die, right? We see the aftermath, and it just it emphasizes that um, this movie isn't focused on being a slasher movie. It's focused on the relationship between uh, Jim and John.
1: So then our main character walks to a gas station, I believe, or something along those lines, and he realizes he can't avoid the cops. So he points his gun at them and kind of hijacks their car. And he grabs their radio, and it's like, I need to talk to who's in charge. I'm going to turn myself in and tell them my story.
0: And they, they let him, uh, they, they get a hold of like a, a police captain or something, and he's like, listen, you know, kid, I tell you what, I'm going to do the best for you that I can do. I'll be as fair as as fair as I can be. Just turn yourself in, drop your weapons, turn yourself in. And he's like, okay, great. You know, I'm going to trust you.
1: And the yeah. moment he trusts him, the cops are killed by Rucker yeah, Hauer. Yeah,
0: and then here, come, here comes Rucker Hauer in that truck again. And, I mean, it's just like a two-second thing. He's like, you know what? Okay, this is what I'm going to do. And you just get this just barely, barely. Your fingertips are just much like the character, just barely brushing that satisfaction, that release, that end of the tension, and then smack right in the face, you're right back in it, because he comes up, he's in the back seat, he's got the two cops in the front, one of them's handcuffed, and Rutger Howard drives up alongside him, shoots one in the head and shoots the other in the throat, and the kid's just like, no! And you can totally feel that frustration, because you feel it as the viewer, too. It's so perfect, the timing in this.
3: Yeah, and I think if we if we uh continue thinking about this movie through the lens of um our antagonists wanting to bring the protagonist down to his level, um here we see Jim taking action and taking people hostage. Um but it's when he decides to trust this police officer and kinda hold on to his roots that uh that man is good. Um that's when, you know, uh john can come in and and make his appearance known and show that he's not done with him because jim is still uh kind of holding on to himself and he hasn't stooped low enough yet
1: so after that jim stumbles out of the broken car and grabs one of the cop's guns and considers killing himself like he puts the gun up under his head and it's really uh exemplifies the culmination of this frustration
0: yeah, well, and before he – because before he pulls the gun out and puts it under his un, – you know, puts it under his chin like he's going to blow his head off. I mean he's just like kind of sobbing and crying and running around and like he even falls to the ground, starts like throwing dirt around just out of frustration and anger. And then like he realizes there's – that it's just absolutely fucking hopeless and then he pulls out the gun and then like a cloud moves away from the sun and I guess he decides maybe I won't kill myself.
1: I think that's supposed to symbolize his hope.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very poignant.
1: Yeah, it's a, a little cheesy, but oh well, it's it's fine. It's nothing. It's a little out of style of the rest of the film. It because, is. It is. Yeah, there's no other moments in the film that have Terrence Malick imagery.
2: It could be that it was added in by someone else or it was something that someone else on the creative team like specifically requested and got shot.
3: Yeah, it's possible yeah, because you know because from what um i've read and, and what we've been talking about there were a lot of uh, a lot of hands and a lot of voices behind this production and, and some people had very different ideas about the, what the movie should be and so yeah. um I, I wouldn't put it past them yeah
1: so then the kid approaches a diner and he sits down in the diner he's like well what can i do now he kind of has given up. He doesn't really have a clear path to follow at this point. And then Ruckerhauer, in a classic moment, just sits down across from him, him in the diner. And the kid pulls his gun, and we feel like the kid has an upper hand. Yep,
0: finally. And you can tell that he's super excited and super stoked. Not really stoked, but you can tell he feels so empowered. He's like, yes, finally, I'm in control now. He pulls out the gun under the table and points it at him. He's like, I'm going to blow you away. And then Rutger Hauer's like, did you even check to see if that gun had bullets? You know, cause this is, this is the gun he pulled from the police station, which is where Rutger Hauer has killed everybody. So right at that, right then, at that moment, that uncertainty hits his character and hits the audience. There might not be any bullets in the gun, so he might not be able to do anything. And Rutger Hauer makes like a finger gun under the table where the kid can't see it, and he presses it up against his gun. He says, I might shoot you with my gun. And then he goes, BANG! and jerks his hand, and the kid just goes berserk, pulling the trigger, and there's no no bullets in the gun.
3: Yeah, yeah, he, he's always two steps ahead, man. That's, that's the problem here.
2: We keep saying that, and, you know, Criminal Dave keeps saying he's supernatural, so who knows? He controls the weather, and is two steps ahead of the people he murders. He does seem to make the desert seem more hopeless than it already is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And at this point we get a nice look into the killer's or Ruckerhauer's psychology because he puts two coins on the kid's eyes and says says maybe try to think a little harder about what this whole thing is about and then leaves him a napkin filled with bullets. And again
0: he point. just he, he has an opportunity where he can do something and he just walks away and lets the kid keep on living and he even gives him
1: ammunition. And at mm-hmm. this point it's pretty clear what Ruckerhauer's motives are.
3: His, his motives are being a cheeky bastard. This dude is <laughs> ridiculous. Man, no, let, let's hear it, Dave. What, what, do you, what would you say his motives are at this point?
1: Well, I mean, he clearly wants to die because this is where it becomes explicit to the audience. In the opening scene when he steps into his car, when he tells the kid to say, I want to die, the first time he says it, there's a little quiver in his voice as if he actually believes what he's saying. So... Rutger wants to die throughout the whole thing. And like you guys said, he wants to be stopped, etc., etc.
0: And that's totally believable. I mean, a lot of people who are into horror movies and stuff like that, they usually have an interest in, not usually, but a lot of them have an interest in serial killers. I don't know if any of you do. Uh,
1: uh, yeah, serial no, killers.
2: I, so. I think <laughs> it. <laughs> now, I've read some really interesting serial killer books, and I think that this does a decent job portraying portraying it without making it seem like super over dramatic. I mean, it's still pretty dramatic.
0: Yeah, and if you notice a lot of serial killers want to be stopped. They can't stop themselves. They want to get caught. They want to die. They but they don't just do it themselves like they they have to be caught. They don't just turn themselves in or something like that. And I think it's like kind of consistent with the whole serial killer mythos that John Ryder found someone he thinks can stop him. And that's why he's egging him on and trying to make him stop him because he wants to be stopped. And there's really some peculiar things about this character. And the most peculiar thing, and I didn't, I'd never noticed this before. It's not like I figured this out myself, but I saw on IMDb that someone noticed, and I noticed it as well, so it's, it's for sure, that he's wearing two wedding rings. And they kind of posit, well, oh, well, maybe that's something he cut off, like that finger or whatever, like that. And I kind of more think, like, maybe his wife died. And that's what set all of this off or something like that. Maybe that's why he doesn't want to live.
1: I don't know. That's also- But, I mean, it could be like a Halloween-type scenario where he has no real motive, which works fine in this case.
3: Maybe he has a uh, wife and he also has a, a gay lover, and that's driving him insane. He was getting a little touchy-feely with uh, Jim at the beginning there. So you See, could that was what I was going to you know? say earlier. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm
2: really glad you brought it up. I wrote down because there's that line where, you know, I brought it up before. My mother told me never to do things like this. I wrote down, <laughs> wow, that's really suggestive. And then there was the thigh grabbing and all it's it is borderline flirtatious.
1: No,
0: yeah. Oh my god. This movie is C. Thomas Howell's character trying to battle his gay
3: thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You figured it out. Yeah, when I when Good I job, tried Warren. That, when Thank I said you. that the scary octopus talks to me in my dream, you know, that's only right before I have sex with the scary male octopus. So I, <laughs> I, I understand those dreams, Jim. But no, you're right, Lauren. There is, there is a could be um, some homoerotic uh, undertones cleaned from this movie. Totally, it's
2: just it is such a weirdly flirtatious movie. And like, I acknowledge that people are dying and things are blowing up and cops are getting shot in the face. But there is something the way Rutger Hauer says his lines to Jim, where mm-hmm. it comes off as very, like, wink, nudge, flirting.
3: Yeah, yeah, no yeah, wonder Jim was eating his uh, French fries so suggestively. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, there's definitely an intimate quality to their relationship. And, you know, I never really thought of it like that. I don't think that's something they overtly meant, but it can, it can totally come off like that, where it's kind of, You know, he does get really close to his face when he's talking to him sometimes, so
2: I don't know. Well, from a science standpoint, the same part of our brain that um, controls our flight or fight response also controls our frolic response. That's what my my ninth grade bio teacher taught us, flight, flight, fright, or frolic, and I have never forgotten it. And so I think when you have, like, the weird flirtational aspect in it, it could also bring up fear because it just brings up tension. And it takes nanoseconds for you to get that kind of tension sorted out. So it could play both as tension and, you know, as flirtatious tension and um, horror tension.
0: That would certainly explain why so many horror movies almost universally have a sexual element to them all the time.
1: Nightmare on Elm Street, Nightmare on Elm Street 2. TCM2, etc. So at this point, a bus shows up, and this bus is actually a nice act of reincorporation because this bus is the first place where we saw the diner girl slash love interest slash Nash. So the guy, kind of the main character, sneaks into the bus, hides in the bathroom, loads his gun, and then once the bus has started to move, he emerges from the bathroom only to see the girl – from the diner who he had seen earlier so he pulls her into the bathroom puts the gun up to her and says do you believe me that I didn't kill those people she says uh sure whatever you say man <laughs>
0: Yeah, this is a little bit of disbelief here because ultimately he does win her over because later the cops pull the bus over and take him out and they're literally going to execute him on the side of the road because the cops like, you spit on my wrist so you need to wipe it off, you know, so it'll look like he's reaching for his gun so he can shoot him. And she'll come out and pick up the gun he threw on the ground and basically uh, make the cops let him go and then they take the car and leave or whatever. But it's, it, to me, this is one kind of unbelievable character interaction here because he seems to win her over by putting a gun in her face in a Greyhound bathroom
1: I think <laughs> my thoughts on this are is that are that she wants to be won over she wants to leave her life behind her and go Dad. on day slash dangerous Bonnie and Clyde adventure which is where I get that's, the Bonnie and Clyde parallels that's a really good point Dave I think you're right
3: yeah and I, I think the way I saw this was it kind of it mirrored Jim pushing uh, John out of the car at the beginning. That was his attempt to stop that villain. And so this is Nash's attempt to stop um, the police villain you know in, in any way that she in any way that she can.
1: Okay, so what happens then is now Nash and the main guy Jim are a couple crime duo. So they hijack the police car and start start driving down the road. And we get a lot of Mad Max action between him and the other police cars. We even get a helicopter that's chasing after them.
0: Yeah, and these action sequences are great. It really feels like a high-speed pursuit here. It really feels like they're moving quick. It really feels like it's dangerous. And I really like how they're shooting the cop car and, like, shooting pieces right off of it. They're blowing the windows out. You know, it really feels like they're in danger of being shot at. And I thought it was really well done when they roll the cars at the end. I mean, they must have rolled those cars at, like, 90 miles an hour because they just go, it, again, it looks like something from Grand Theft Auto where they're just, like, flying through the air rolling and stuff like that. It really feels like a very
1: dangerous high-speed pursuit. The only Definitely. time, this is a criticism I have of the movie, uh, the slow motion here I'm not a fan of. Actually, all it does is really display the carnage a little bit more, and it works the first time, or sorry, it works the last time once, the girl and the main character finally escape the police, and they're walking through the carnage of the audio. The, sorry, the slow motion kind of, what's the word, heightens that cathartic release of them finally having escaped. But aside from that, the slow motion of cars crashing doesn't really work for me.
2: So it doesn't do it for you? Yeah. I mean, I can see it being used for dramatic effect, because when you look at this movie on Wikipedia, it is listed as being an action movie
0: yeah i mean it's certainly not just a horror movie i mean it has strong strong action thriller elements to it i mean they did go out of their way with the special effects for the action more than anything else
1: yeah and what happens is how they actually get around and get away from the police is that recker howard shows up and destroys the helicopter that's following them and also shoots the cops yep yep he basically liberates him again and then we get the most cringeworthy moment of the film when the girl walks out of the car and shouts, "Why didn't he kill us too?" And good That's delivery. not
0: cringeworthy, Dave. She is speaking for the for the for the segment of the audience that has not really caught up to what's going on yet. This guy who caused all these problems for Jim just shows up and kills all the cops that are chasing them and then just takes off. It doesn't make sense to her. And for a lot of people at this point in the movie, it might still not make sense to them
1: either. I'm not saying that the line itself is bad. I'm saying it's perfectly reasonable for her to ask that and perfectly in character for her to ask that. But I'm saying the delivery was poor. And this was the only moment in the film where I can nail it down as like this should have been done in a different take. Because okay. It didn't feel like she was legitimately frustrated. It felt like she was just screaming, and the screaming didn't really translate as emotional, in my opinion. Yeah, she does some emotional screaming later, though. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So at this point, we get towards the end of the second act. The main character and the girl are at a motel, and Rutger Hauer sh- shows up at the motel and, and kidnaps the girl while the main guy's in the shower.
0: Yeah, and then when he comes out of the shower, this is when the cinematography changes is during this motel scene. It doesn't so much change as it just doesn't focus on the wide openness anymore. There's not as much color to it for the remainder of the second act, and it kind of gets a little more cramped up. The whole, like the inside of the motel room, is uncharacteristically small feeling. The inside of the the, the motel bathroom is uncharacteristically small feeling, and you can tell they're changing it up on purpose. They're trying to change the tone. And when he comes out, he can't find her, and he goes running out through the parking lot of the truck stop, through all the trucks and stuff like that. And even that feels closed in and kind of confined. And then when the cops get a hold of him, they're like, no, 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 no. We're not after you. Now we need you to help us. And as the audience, you're like, what the fuck? And you find out later. And they bring him towards what's going on. The screen becomes cluttered with, like, cop cars and activity and stuff like that. And it seems very intentional that they change the way they wanted the scenes to look for this part of the movie.
1: And it certainly changes the tone because at this point, the main character gets into the car and has to plead with Rutger Hauer for the life of his girlfriend
0: yeah what he has done is he has taken and tied her hands to a trailer and tied her feet to the back of the rig like the fifth wheel or something so he's basically stretching her out using a giant diesel engine an 18 wheeler to stretch her out and he's revving the engine and he lifts his foot off the clutch a little bit so it creeps forward and stretches her and you see like her hands are bound and they got blood all over them, stuff like that and she is screaming and you can kind of they they have noises where you can hear the tension of the ropes and stuff like that it's very powerful and it's it's it, you just know that it's just got to be amazingly painful and frightening
3: yeah, it's, it's sort of like a like a Green Goblin, Mary Jane villain tactic here. Um, it's uh, And, you know, it's, I guess it's too bad that this movie uh, came out before the MCU was a thing. I'm sure Spider-Man could have saved her.
0: So the cops ask him to get into the cab. It's like he's telling the cops, why don't you do something? Why don't you do something? So they're like, what the fuck are we supposed to do? If he lets his foot off the clutch, she dies. So they, it's not like they can shoot him or something like that. So they're like, you got to go in there and talk to him because that's what he wants
1: and this reveals that the movie is very dark and downbeat despite all the action scenes. Like, this is a very gritty and realistic, almost film noir, hero's choice moment.
0: You know, and and when I watched this as a kid, the minute that I saw that he had her tied up like that and what, you know, what he was doing to her, throughout the whole rest of the sequence, my heart was in my throat. It was just like, wow, you know, what's going to – because there's not a whole lot of options. And he gets in there. And he puts – and John Ryder puts the gun on the seat next to him. He says, pick up that gun. And he's like, he doesn't want to do it. So he stretches her out a little more, and you hear her screaming. You hear that whine of the turbo diesel revving, and it's there's so much tension. He gets him to pick up the gun. He says, now put it to my head. And he puts it to his head, and he's like, now kill me. And he's like, but if I kill you, she'll die. And then he's like, oh, God. And he takes the gun away from him. He's like, you're so pathetic. And then he lets off the clutch and floors it. And it doesn't show what happens But you get her screaming and you can hear like this. It's subtle, but it's there underneath all the noise. Yeah, the flesh ripping gross wet with her, you know, scream of death mixed in with it. And that stuck with me for days when I was a kid. That really disturbed me. And that's pretty fucking cool because by the time I was 12, I mean, I'd already seen the thing like 500 times and Jaws and I was just totally into horror and that's and even though that scene doesn't show anything that fucked me up for a couple of days and oh, it's yeah. just it's it's so powerful it's so well done i mean it's it's a big part of the reason i love this movie
3: yeah I that, mean, they r-
2: say the imagination is worse than anything anyone can produce
3: yeah it's it's really a testament to um the uh, the power of that scene you know if you had been accustomed to stuff like the thing and something like this um still hit you you know it's such a tense scene and i almost expected uh Rutger Howard to start giving a soliloquy about tears and rain or something. But, um, (laughs) you know, we didn't get there, but it was still it was still very, uh, very impactful.
1: And something interesting about this whole sequence is that uh, it's the most obvious thing, but we haven't really discussed it yet, is the fact that the girl dies here. The love interest dies when you would never get something like that nowadays. Like first time I saw this, all I was thinking was. How's he going to get out of this? How is he going to save the girl? You know, and that's what everybody
0: is thinking when they
1: watch it for the first time. Yeah, too, That's yeah. what I was thinking. It's like, how is he going to get out of this situation? You
0: don't even consider that his love interest is just going to get torn in half and he's going to completely fail to save her and there's nothing he can do, but yeah. the whole overarching, uh, the whole movie, you realize after that, that, like, well, the whole movie, he hasn't been able to do anything about anything, so why would this be any different?
1: And this time when I watched the movie, I had the unfortunate thought, all I could think about during this watch was, I bet in the remake, they let the girl live.
3: Yeah, as, as far as I can recall, um, uh, we get a final girl situation. There's a second protagonist introduced in the movie that... Um, uh, is a bit more, um, present than Nash's character. I think throughout the whole film, it's a man and a woman. And, um, yeah. I think, I think it's the woman that lives. Um, I'd have to check it out again, but I think it's a bit more typical in that sense, in most senses, actually.
1: Yeah. So moving right along, Rutger Hauer is now in custody and Jim is being driven back home to do whatever by the police officer, by the police chief. So, Rutger Hauer is sitting in some armored car being driven to a prison, and he, we know he's going to escape, and the main character knows it too at this point.
0: Yeah, again, the main character is the audience, and the audience is the main character. And it's, it's effective in that, but this is here, you know, I don't even really say, to me, this is just like, it's not even the third act, because really what happens from here on out is pretty short, there's not a lot to it, and we don't get in need to get into it in a lot of detail. But this is kind of the weak part of the movie, in my opinion, is this last like ten or fifteen minutes, where the kid knows he's going to escape and he does escape, but we don't know how he escaped and stuff like that. And ultimately they just kind of send the kid over there and the kid shows up, you know, he he hijacks another police vehicle, he steals the captain's bronco after holding him at gunpoint. He catches up to the bus heading in the other direction, just as Rutger Hauer shoots open the back door and shoots the cops and jumps out onto the hood of the Bronco. And then, you know, he there's a little bit of uh, a fight. interaction while he's in the front seat with him. Then he slams on the brakes. He lands on the ground, and then uh, he shoots up the Bronco a lot because then another thing that weakens the end part of this movie is the trope of the car not starting. He slams on the brakes. Rutger Hauer goes out on the pavement and then the car won't start, the Bronco won't start. Why? Because he slammed on the fucking brakes and the windshield's broken? It doesn't make any sense. So I thought it stumbled there quite a bit.
1: I actually liked it more than you, I think, Mike, because I thought it was fine. It was certainly lower caliber than the rest of the film, but I think the context of the rest of the film made it cathartic enough to the point where I didn't really... Notice those issues. Of course, we have the trope of the car not starting and that was stupid and a few other stupid moments like that, like Rucker Hauer uh, jumping from one car to another. But uh, aside from that, it was pretty standard, but fine and cathartic when Jim finally kills Rucker Hauer.
0: And then the original ending, which they got rid of because they didn't want an X rating, which I would have liked a lot more because it cuts off one of the stupid tropes. In the original ending, when he lands on the concrete, Jim gets out, picks up the gun, and shoots him while he's laying in the road, doesn't even give him a chance, and that's the end of the movie. And they had to get rid of that, and they made it to where he goes up and pokes him with the shotgun to see if he's alive after he, he runs into him with the Bronco again. Then he turns around and walks away, and it's that's the trope, Right oh, it must be dead, poke, poke, okay, I'm safe now, I can walk away, and then it grabs your leg, or it stands back up, or whatever. And Rucker Howard stands back up, and I was like, oh, come on, man, no, don't do that. I mean, even the first time I saw it, I was like, why are you fucking up this movie by doing this stupid shit at the end? Well, after I read up on it, I found out it's because they didn't want an X rating, because he's shooting some guy that's half unconscious laying in the road while he's defenseless. So, I mean, I understand why they had to do it, but it, it hurts the movie a little bit. And he stands back up, throws his handcuffs at Jim or whatever, and Jim turns around and shoots him. And then it kind of gets quality again, because he goes back, and it's kind of a dark shot where you may basically just see a silhouette against the sunset. He goes back to the Bronco, and you hear him light another cigarette. And it's like the exact same sound effect as when he lit the cigarette to open up the movie. Then you get your credits.
1: Yeah, I think that cigarette noise, the match lighting noise, is really effective, because it's... a establishes the film as cyclical because in the beginning of the movie it's this guy alone in a car on the road. Here he's alone in a car on the road. The two things that impacted him Rutger Hauer and his love interest are both dead. So he's back to where he was at the beginning. He's just changed in character.
0: Yeah and he's probably unemployed now too.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Alright so of course this episode went a little bit long. It can't be helped. I love this fucking movie. I think it's a great movie. We'll see what they thought about it. Dave, why don't you just real quick give us your review of the movie and give me an out of 10 score.
1: Yeah, so I'm going to be really quick about this. I've already said most of what I need to say about it. Uh, Cinematography is beautiful and effective. Editing is all solid and builds tension well. They know when to leave a take long and to use quick cuts for the action scenes. Uh, it's very solidly built all around. All the performances are solid. There are just a few to weak moments with some side characters. The ending, like we've already talked about, is standard and like falls a little below par. Like if I had to give the rest of the movie a score, it would be like a nine. Well, the ending would be around a six, but still it's very effective in pretty much every way. And I would highly, highly recommend you check this out because this certainly is a horror classic. So 8 out of 10. Awesome. Alrighty, Liam, what did you think of this movie?
3: Yeah, I'm with Dave on everything he just said. You know, I'm, I'm with, uh, mostly everything that's been said in this podcast. It seems, uh, we're all kind of in agreement here. I loved that it wasn't a typical slasher despite having such a, um, typical premise and using these tropes i felt like uh they knew that they were using these tropes and they and they played upon them to make a sort of cautionary tale and so that was super nice to see it um you know roger ebert did a review where he gave it zero stars and i think a word he used was uh reprehensible when describing uh the violence and i think I totally disagree just because that's what I thought the movie might be. It's what I expected it to be and it wasn't at all. And in fact, that's even the movie that, um, as it was going on, I, I thought the movie was very typical. But after thinking about it, after seeing it, and after having this conversation, you know, I'm only liking it more as time passes and if we had done this podcast an hour or two later, maybe my score would even be even higher, you know, but, um, I'm, I'm with Dave here. I think, I think this is an eight out of 10 and I, uh, I definitely think you should check it out. If you haven't, it's, uh, it's not a typical slasher, but there is a lot to dig into. And, um, it's a really, it's not a fun watch, but it's a uh, effective watch.
0: All right. Lauren, what do you think about this movie?
2: You know, this wasn't my favorite of all the ones we've watched. Um, I think there are a lot of strong points. I think, like we have said, the cinematography is really pretty and it does a good job of building tension, but I honestly would not right off the bat class this as a horror movie. I would say there are horrific moments in it, but I would definitely mostly call it like a road thriller. Um, if that's a classification I can just make up. Um, uh, I would give it a 5 out of 10. It's it's something that I would watch if it was on TV, but I don't know if it's something that I would have watched without you telling us to watch it.
1: All right, great. Well it's
0: all right, you know, not everything's for everyone. That's why it's good to have at the center. What am I gonna say about this that I haven't already said? If this movie were a person, I would give it a hand job. This is I'd have to say, uh, this sits at number six on my all-time what I consider the all-time greatest movies of all time, and I've only Ooh. ever had like a top five. But this is definitely number six. It looks beautiful. It's acted great. They do a lot of novel and creative and unique and first time one of a kind things with this movie, like with the double punching with the horror and then here come the cops and every scene is crafted with care and it's just all looks so beautiful. It's so horrifying. You feel you're so sympathetic with the characters. I mean, everything about this movie is perfect and very impactful and very entertaining, very engrossing. It just has a couple of minor little problems, you know, about with the ending being kind of typical and tropey. And I can see how some people would look at this and say, well, the premise is is questionable. You know, why does he keep letting him go? But, I mean, like I said, if you understand serial killers, it's not uncommon for them to want to be stopped. And this is really just about a guy that wants to be stopped. He wants to be stopped by this guy. So I can understand how it loses some steam with people when they don't understand that, you know, or whatever, for other reasons. But to me, I mean, like I said, this is number six. This is one of the best movies ever made. I absolutely love this fucking movie. It's Rutger Hauer's best movie for sure, and he's scary as fuck in it. And I give this a nine and a half out of ten. All right, this episode went kind of long, and rightfully so in my opinion. There's not a whole lot else that I've got to say. We just kind of got to get this over with so we can get on with our lives until next weekend. Uh, do you guys got anything you need to add before we go? Nope.
2: Nope.
3: Nope.
0: All right, thanks for listening to this episode of the Horrors Horror Sport Podcast, and we hope you'll be here for the next one. We'll see you guys later. Adios.
1: Later.
2: Bye.
3: Later days.
1: Oh, you did
0: it again.
3: It's my thing, man. It's my thing.
0: Okay, so we will see you later, huh?